This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, And You Thought Your Girlfriend Was Nuts, The Mel's Tia Story. And the author is Melissa J. Michaels. And now the real author, Kevin, joins us on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Kevin. Hello. How are you doing there? Obviously, Melissa J. Michaels is your pen name. That's correct, yes. Well, Kevin, I'm going to read a few things you've written just to set the stage for our discussion about your book. You say this. What's a girl to do when she's gay, abused by her father, and has a strange and somewhat weird fetish? Well, if you're Melissa Michaels, you sit down and write a book. This is the story of a poor girl who only wanted her parents to love her, but her father took great delight in beating her and mentally abusing her. And her mother wasn't interested in her at all. But somewhere along the way, she met another girl, Tia. What was the motivation to write the book, Kevin? Um, Well, like I said, it was a little story that kept going around in my head about this poor girl. And um, I'd been doing a lot of research over the Internet and different people I'd met. And I felt that, yeah, um, how about if a girl met another girl, they'd fall in love, but they got this weird fetish, like, wow, you know. And um, it gradually all came together. But I, I really had to uh, get into being a girl. So I had to wait, like, how to think like a girl and act like one. And it was really hard, so, as, um, you know, as you're writing the story. So how did you do that? Well, I, of course, I asked a lot of friends, female friends of mine and different people, like, um, what, what, do you, what are your emotions when you're making love? How do you feel? Blah, 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 blah. And um, I gradually got a synopsis of um, how a female feels. But, of course, uh, as I'm writing two different stories, like what part of it is Tia's side of the story, and then, of course, the other one is Melissa's. So I've got to switch both characters. I've got to become Tia and Melissa. Sort of thing. So it, it got really weird at times, trust me. <laughs> Well, you say the whole book was fun, but I did share, shed tears while writing about the abuse of Melissa. Because um, it brought back a lot of memories, personal memories, and um, it still does occasionally. There was a lot of abuse that I suffered growing up with the nuns that uh, raised me, so that's kind of in there for that reason. Something you can never really forget. No, really, I can't, anyway. And I'm sure you're just like any other human being. It's just kind of some deep wounds that are within you. That's correct, yeah. That's, um, I, you know, I, I have gone through therapy, and it helped for a bit, but it never really goes away. And I thought maybe writing this book might help a bit. Has it? Uh, to a point, yes. Um it's, you know, opened me up a bit more, I think. And hopefully when people read this book, they'll realize, you know, what has been going on. Well, unfortunately, obviously, tragically, and uh, all the other adjectives to describe such an awful uh, growing up period in anybody's life, uh, when you describe Melissa uh, being beaten by her father, now... Uh, that obviously, and and you personally, you're saying you understand not only the physical pain but the emotional pain. That's correct. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I know how Melissa would feel. So her mother in this story, and this is a fictional story, but you're using this point to make a point. You're using this theme to make a point. That's correct. Yeah. But, uh, it's basically, uh, the story goes that she's writing the book just to let everybody know what her parents were really like. Like, they weren't the nice people that everybody thought they were. 
And in this case, her mother really doesn't care whether she gets beaten or not, it sounds like. She's not interested in her at all. Yeah, she just ignored her. Um, she put her down as much as she could in her own little way. Um, if you read the book, she calls Melissa stupid at times when she was just three or four years old. And, you know, like doing what little kids do do, they get into trouble, of course, they get into mischief. And um, she just doesn't help him at all, doesn't help for one little bit. Uh, she doesn't protect her from the abuse from her father. And, of course, like any little child, any uh, even of, uh, how old is how old is Melissa when this is all, I mean, does it start right from early, early childhood? Yeah, it starts, I pretty much have her being born in the hospital, and then, uh, of course, the first couple of chapters is basically, you know, her growing up and that, and then the abuse starts and that, you know, she, she always tells it sort of thing. The, the way you should read the book is as if she's sitting there in front of you telling you her life story. All children want to be loved by their mom and dad, and they'll put up with just about anything, won't they? Oh, of course, yeah. And in this so, case, and in this case, Melissa goes looking for love. I guess that's part of the theme. Sort of, yeah. Like, um, of course, she she doesn't realize she's gay at this point, but um, she knows she's supposed to have feelings for boys, but she knows that there's nothing there, sort of thing. That's. <laughs> When she sees a girl, she gets all, wow, holy shit, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> now, Melissa has this fetish. We're not going to tell what it is, but uh, no. <laughs> it's pretty weird, isn't it? It is, but you know what? Um, before I put that in, I sort of did a lot of research into that. And uh, believe it or not, there's a lot of people involved in it, and it opened my eyes. Hmm. And, um, I mean, I'm not into it myself, but, right. wow, whatever, you know, sort of thing. I, wonder, uh, I just thought, I thought it would be something um, to shock people when they read it. I wonder why it's as prevalent as you say it is. I wonder why. Geez, if I knew that answer, I think I'd be a very rich man. But Right, um, right. It, I think like most fetishes, um, it's just like, say, for instance, if you loved eating craft dinner all the time, I don't know if you'd class that as a fetish, but uh, that would be considered weird as well, I think. Right. Maybe not on the same scale. Right. Well, it's usually a fetish. Is does that usually, is that being exhibited because of something lacking in the person's life? They're trying to get attention? Well, uh, I think I did put it in the book, sort of, that, um, in fact, Tia mentions it, that maybe that's why she likes doing it to get attention. She loves to shock people. Right, and as she become a teenager and got older, she got she kind of got a kick out of it, sort of thing. Like she just got off on it, and so she just kept doing it. And maybe because of the abuse, you know, like maybe she was getting back at people, sort of thing, in her own way. Right. At what age does she meet Tia? Uh, ooh, good question. I would think she was in her early 20s, if I remember okay. rightly. She met her at a party. Okay, so working. before meeting Tia, is she having uh, some, you know, affairs with any other uh, teenage girls? Oh, yeah, like she, she meets another girl at work that, um, that she fell in love with, and they lived together for a little while, but the other girl didn't get off on her fetish and more or less booted her out the apartment sort of thing. <laughs> But, um, yeah, she had little one-night stands, of course, and that, whereas Tia never really had any of that. Um, she knew she was lesbian, but she never had any actual um, girlfriends as such. Melissa would be her first. So tell us about Tia. Give, tell us about her character. Tia is from a very rich family. She's, um, she's very highly educated. Her parents are very, very wealthy, and she was brought up very strict, um, you know, as girls, like, you know, they're supposed to be prim and proper, sit up straight and eat, prop, you know, with a knife and fork properly and that. And um, this is why her parents didn't like her being with Melissa, because Melissa was from the wrong side of the tracks. She wasn't as highly educated. And basically, you know, like she was just a meat and potatoes kind of girl, whereas uh, Tia is more like caviar and champagne. At, at the time when I wrote it, uh, same-sex marriages in Alberta, Canada was not legal. It is now. So they just can go to um, any church or minister 
to get married, but they did find a female minister to marry them. But it was sort of like wasn't really legal in the sense of the word. Like you know, if they just split up, they couldn't have gone to a lawyer and filed for divorce or anything like that. Is there any adoption theme in this book? I'm sorry, what was that? Is there an adoption theme in the book? Uh, no, there isn't. I, I never touched on that in this particular book. I might in the second one. Do you think that gay couples should be allowed to adopt? I think so. Um, providing, of course, that they can, you know, don't bring up the child in the gay uh, theme. Uh, I think they should be left up to the child, of course. But yeah, um, I know many gay people that are raising children and they're very happy and level-headed. Probably better than a normal couple, you know, like man, male, female. I see no no reason why they can't. And what are your? I'm sure, that will cause some contro controversy, but. <laughs> and does your what? What are some of the gay themes that your book touches upon uh, besides the obvious? Is there any other, uh, 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 you know, more extreme kinds of uh, themes that um, most people don't think about in the gay community? Um, I try to. I touched on transgender cross-dressing a little bit. Um, again, probably in book two, that will be more into that. Uh, basically, be, the story continues, you know. But um, that's about the only other thing I touched on, was the transgender and um, cross-dressing and that. So you're in favor of uh, guys being allowed to wear dresses uh, in public without any fear of arrest? Absolutely, if, if they wish to. I, I think, uh, you know, who, who, who uh, said that dresses were just for women? Like women put in, uh, they wear men's clothing, no problem. Nobody says a word to them. But a guy puts a dress or a skirt on and right away, wow, you know, it's the end of the world. Like fire and brimstone's going to rain down from heaven sort of thing. Any persecution themes in your book concerning the gay community? Um, I did touch on one. It's just a fictional account of a guy. Um, he owned a gay bookstore and got beat up, and they set fire to his store and everything. He they, he died. It was just based on um, some things I read in the paper a few years ago. Again, it is a fictional account, but it's based on um, things that I've read in the papers. You keep talking about book two. Is this going to be a series? No. Oh, God, no. Jesus. I hope not. Um, no, book two is just some... Uh, it'll be like they're going to carry on their life in Vancouver, but um, the fetish won't be there. And I'm hoping to put in more uh, different stories once I think of them. Right now, I've, I've only got about two chapters wrote of that. Do you think gays are being accepted more than ever before in society? I think they are now, yes. Uh, definitely in, I don't know about in every uh, province or state, but yeah, um, they are being accepted more now. Definitely. And that's good? Oh, definitely. I, I, I'm glad of that. Of course, it still does go on. People get fired from their jobs for being gay or transgender, unfortunately, but um, thankfully that's very few and far between now. You say there's a lot of gay lesbian books, but none with a beautiful story about two girls falling in love. Uh, well, not like the one I wrote. <laughs> um, I mean, yes, there is a lot of books out there, yes. But um, the ones that I was looking at in the, the bookstores and library, and I couldn't find anything remotely close to what I, how I'd wrote it. Because I, I try to get their feelings, their emotions in the book. And hopefully whoever reads it will pick up on that. The title of the book, And You Thought Your Girlfriend Was Nuts, The Mel Tia Story. And the author is Melissa J. Michaels, pen name for Kevin. Uh, Kevin, tell us how to get your book. Uh, well, you can di go directly to uh, iUniverse or you can go to Amazon.com. Any bookstore can get it for you. Currently, it's not in the bookstores. You may have to order it. But um, if enough people do order it, then I'm sure they'll bring it in. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. 
And thank you for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Tracking Terra. And the author is J.K. Scott. And J.K. joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, J.K. Hello, Steve. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to be on TalkingNet. Well, we appreciate you being with us. Uh, This is an adventure story. As you put it, Sarah was born over 500 years ago. She fell off a mountain into a cave and was saved by cosmic aliens who resided in the cave. They taught her lessons about universal life, and her life's purpose developed into protecting humans' evolution on Earth. I guess she also uh, got some kind of longevity from this visit from these aliens. Is that correct? That is correct. That's in reference to the pineal gland. Okay. Reprogramming uh, it. Being born over 500 years ago and then having a relationship with someone 200 years ago, I guess that's all possible when you, when you have that kind of longevity. Uh, yes. I mean, if you look back at some of the ancient manuscripts, they talk about life as being much longer than what we have it here today. We don't know if that is a misinterpretation or if there was a reality of longer life back in ancient times. J.K., what's the motivation here? What's the focus here? Why did you publish this book? Well, first of all, I've always been interested in the paranormal, time travel, uh, UFOs, or what we now call advanced beings, and that whole matter. I, you know, I sort of feel like I was born without a normalcy bias. In other words, I didn't necessarily believe that things couldn't happen or couldn't be true. However, what has happened is that's led me to a tremendous amount of research, and I'm a voracious reader. In fact, I'm actually at a point right now, one book in the house, and i got to take one book out before the house tips over because I uh, like to do a lot of research. So uh, my books are well-researched, and I also have my own personal experiences, which has developed into my motivation and my interest in this area. Of course, we may have heard of different comments by astronauts. Tell us some of those. Well, astronauts are my heroes. 
even though they are uh, in a situation where they have uh, classified documents and they can't necessarily share everything they experience, but there are some heroes and mavericks that have come forward. For example, astronaut Scott Carpenter said, at no time when the astronauts were in space were they alone. Then if you look at uh, the physicist Steve Hawking, who said, now he looks at it from a perspective that possibly humans or homo sapiens sapiens are not being uh, prepared to understand this world in a much higher, higher realms. And he said that the earth is doomed and mankind should flee to space. Uh, I don't personally believe the Earth is doomed. I believe this is our responsibility to take care of this planet and uh, probably know more about ourselves and how we can not only get along uh, with our own planet as an organism, but in solar, our solar system as well as the rest of space. Well, let's first of all talk about this advanced race from Andromeda. Or, no. uh, Andromeda. Andromeda. Yes, Andromeda. Very large galaxy. In fact, actually, uh, theoretically, you know, scientists said that it, in the far, far future, Andromeda will probably take over our Milky Way galaxy. So it's sort of interesting, and that's why I decided to choose the Andromeda galaxy in my book, Tracking Terra. So these aliens come to Earth, and what happens to them with Sarah? Tell us about what Sarah uh, okay. experiences with them. Well, it's sort of interesting. UFOs have been around in ancient history for a long time. I mean, if we look at uh, cave drawings, we go back to ancient manuscripts, to artistic uh, drawings from the past. So I took the story of Sarah being a young girl living in Italy, uh, climbing on a mountain with her two brothers, and she saw something shiny, and she goes to reach, she leaves the trail from her two brothers, reaches for it, and ends up tumbling off the mountain into a hole in the mountain, into a cave. And she expected to die, but she didn't. And so I go through the process, because she didn't die, what she experienced in that cave and who was in that cave. There's always a lot of uh, theories about UFOs being underground, also being uh, in lakes and waters, not only in airspace. So I decided to take that as some of the uh, premises for my adventure story. And because she was a student or uh, a mentor, she had the mentors of the cosmic aliens, they told her about universal life. And in exchange for her knowledge, she was dedicated to continuing making sure the evolution of consciousness continued on Earth. And so she would do projects if there was anything that was happening on Earth that would interrupt that process. She would be involved in missions, and so that was her exchange. She would work these missions, she would have longevity in her life, and she had special knowledge. So there is some conspiracy on Earth to wipe out human memory? Well, let's put it this way. If there are cosmic aliens, are they always all positive? Is there any possibility that they haven't developed and have a keen interest in us, especially when you look at us from afar? You know, there's a lot of bombs going off on this planet. There's a lot of things that people need to protect themselves. And you would question, who are these humans, and do we want them outside their planet in space if they are a problem? So I sort of took the assumption in my book that uh, cosmic aliens may be here observing us. There may be some that want to make sure that we evolve so that we are prepared to go into space, that we aren't a prison planet, that we aren't relegated to just our, our own little planet. And so I take that in my story form. So part of the plot is that there is a bounty on her life, and she's uncertain for uh, what reason, but in the, in the scheme or the overall scheme of her living so long, she meets David uh, some two, 200 years ago. Tell us about David and why he's important to the story. 
Well, the bounty on her life she's been informed about, but she doesn't know if the bounty is because maybe somebody wants to know why she lives so long because the population of Earth right now is really interested in anti-aging. So she doesn't know if it's for that reason or it's because she's worked in missions. Her last job, she worked in a lab where there was a chemical that was being developed to wipe out memory in the human race. And another third reason is that because she has cosmic contact. So she doesn't know which reason, but she gets a note telling her that David, a a person that she knew in France over 200 years ago who uh, they had partnered together during the French Revolution, that he was now reincarnated back on Earth and was involved in other projects and that she needed to find him. So the book starts out that she's on the run, and she's got to find David because David holds something that's going to uh, unfold for her in this story. He's got his own hidden secrets. Absolutely he does, because he's involved in a project that has to do with the magnetic earth and the sacred sites on earth. Uh, my theory is that every sacred site develops energy for Earth. Sacred and site. Uh, that happens to these sites uh, could actually compromise uh, human evolution. And what are these sacred sites? Where are they? Well, if you look at the sacred sites, even the pyramids are sacred sites. You go up into Peru, in which my story takes my characters into Peru because I had the personal experience of being there near Lake Titicaca and had gone to uh, a place near uh, Puno, near Lake Titicaca, where there was a, that was written about in the 1500s that's called Aramu Maru Doorway. It's actually a cliff with a door built in it, and supposedly the uh, story goes that in the 1500s when uh, Portugal was taking over uh, Peru, the soldiers were that one of the priests was trying to run from the soldiers, and he walked, he ran up to this cliff into this doorway and pressed his hand on the cliff, and supposedly a beam opened up and he disappeared in it. Now, the story goes that this was written about by the soldiers. I've never seen the writing of it, but I incorporated that into my story in Lake Titicaca. Plus, I had my characters, because this book is about time travel, very interested in this particular uh, location because it's a portal, and it's also a sacred site. Stonehenge is a sacred site. You've got sacred sites uh, in China, in Thailand. I mean, there's sacred sites all over the globe. And uh, even Sedona is a sacred site. And, of course, my story takes place predominantly in Sedona. Yeah, I'm from Arizona, so naturally I love to write about uh, Arizona. Sarah has to deal with clandestine companies, untrustworthy investors, and, of course, this cosmic alien interference. Well, what she discovers, and I don't want to do any spoilers, is that David is involved in a lot more things than she was uh, aware of. She knew she had to contact David, but... And, of course, when she tries to approach him and says that I knew you 200 years ago, he's taken back by this and totally mistrusts her. And not only that, but he's guarding some other harboring secrets with his half-brother and another group, an organization that uh, I don't want to do a spoiler, but they're not part of the government. They're just a private organization that has private funding coming in, and they are possibly working with other aspects of life on this planet. Is that Brian or Thomas? Right, Brian. Brian? And then finds out that uh, Thomas Tabarrel is uh, ahead of this company called Beyond Black Borders, and that's a specialized classified program that's outside even the government realm, that's even a higher classification. 
and there's this company that's involved, and of course Sarah doesn't know if this company is in her interest or not in her interest. So this story's got a lot of little uh, tunnels and different aspects of the adventure that she's got to solve in trying to decipher what is really going on and who is trying to close down the sacred sites which would compromise the consciousness evolution of humanity and then sarah has uh is it rami her one of her good friends best friend rami is uh because when when the cosmic aliens set her up to live a long life they went and took her in time you know, thousands of years in advance and in the past. So she had the special knowledge of of what the history of the of this universe is. And what happens is that because she is alone, they went to a family in Italy that also was aware of this cosmic activity going on and made sure that Sarah had a family through her ancestry to make sure that she had someone in her life, knowing that she was going to live live a long life. And Rami was the fourth generation of this family that made sure that they had access to whatever they needed in life, if it was wealth through where all the diamonds are located on the earth or where special gems are located for their uh for their well-being so that they made sure that Sarah always had a contact in her life. So Rami was uh, one of her best friends. You believe time travel may be more accessible than current research indicates? I do, because I believe in the uh, out-of-body experiences. Uh, I personally have had them throughout my life, and uh, it wasn't until many a lot more maverick scientists started researching this era of out of body experiences and of course my hero way back years ago was Robert Monroe and then uh, I followed uh, even Edgar Casey and today there are I follow uh, Graham Hancock's readings there's a lot of people that are writing today that are that are opening up questions and like i said i was born without the normalcy bias i never questioned oh this isn't possible it just only motivated me to research that to see well what is possible and i do believe in time travel i believe in parallel worlds sometimes i even often wonder if uh uh sometimes are what you call the uh oh the the dreams that are lucid you know sometimes you wonder because there's never any beginning to a dream. You're just sort of in the middle of it, and you feel like you just stepped into another world, and you're a little bit hesitant about being in this world, and you wonder if there are other worlds that you step in and step out of in consciousness. But the important thing is to uh, be able to evaluate it all to sort of see what's important to this reality in developing your own consciousness. We have time just for one more comment. Now, this is part of a trilogy. Yes, it is. And I'm halfway through my third book right now, and I I love the reading material that it's led me to. One of the reading material that I'm reading is called The Colbrin, K-O-L-B-R-I-M. It's uh, manuscripts, uh, 13 manuscripts, uh, authors of Egyptians in the Celtics. But I'm uh, now reading uh, books regarding Planet X, because my third book is going to be on that topic. The title of the book, Tracking Terra. Yes. And the author is J.K. Scott. J.K., tell us how to get your book. Well, if you, it's on uh, Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it from iUniverse. iUniverse published it. Go to my website, www.authorjkscott.com. Also, if you go to my website, uh, Look at the uh, book trailers, Shades of Truth and Tracking Terra. And Tracking Terra, there's photographs that I took while I was in Peru and Sedona that have been incorporated in the book trailer. Thank you, J.K., for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much. I truly enjoyed this uh, interview.
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, Choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central, on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central, on the mom to mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book the parables of Jesus revisited an innovative approach to understanding and interpreting the parables. And the author is William F. Beckgard, and Bill joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bill. Hi, how you doing? Well, good to have you with us. This is going to be uh, quite a discussion about a subject that has a lot of different viewpoints about how to interpret the parables of Jesus and what they mean. Let me read what you've written about your book. The Parables of Jesus Revisited is a common-sense approach to understanding the parables. It discards the use of allegorical interpretation and keeps to the literal meanings of the elements of the parables. By using a literal system of interpretation, the parable lessons become clear, consistent, and free of hidden mystery. Well, there's probably those who would differ with you, wouldn't they? Oh, yes, yes. It's surprising uh, when I speak to my peers about this. Um, they seem to be pretty well entrenched in opinion, uh, which I don't blame them. And the, they seem to have kind of a, if I can express it like this, a love affair of uh, allegorizing, uh, bringing out... Um, uh, Old double meanings and 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 uh, 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 hidden lessons, which uh, don't always uh, work. But then, on the other hand, uh, I have received some very good comments from my peers, saying, "You know, this this really makes sense." And some of them have even expressed uh, the aha emotion. <laughs> <laughs> aha! Yes, yes. Well, yeah. Bill, tell us about your background and why you wrote this book. Well, I was uh, I was in the Coast Guard in Hawaii, and that's where I was saved. I came to know the Lord. Um, I my life really turned around at that point, and as I express in the, in, in my book, uh, uh, there was a void, an emptiness that was filled. Uh, I always felt it, but I didn't know what it was, and it was God. Well, I had a, a, a real deep desire to study His Word, which I did, and I had some excellent pastors who were good teachers, very skillful, knowledgeable. And uh, 
Oh, uh, a few years after I was saved, I felt the call to preach, so I went to seminary. And, and while I was in seminary, I pastored a small church in Wilmington, California. Uh, then that church merged with a church in Carson, California, and I pastored there. So I pastored a total of 34 years. And I always felt that my strong suit was not preaching, but more along the lines of teaching. And, of course, uh, the parables, there's always great interest in, in, in the parables. So uh, I had put together a series of lessons on them, and they were very well received. The people were happy, and I've discussed it with others. And I felt that uh, the material was of value and interest and, and perhaps helpful to others uh, to put it in a book. That kind of gives the background of, of myself and, and how I wrote the book. Well, let's start with the very basic question. What is a parable? Well, a parable is a story, and there's some good authors who, uh, theologians, that define it, but simply put, it's, it's, it's one truth cast along a side of another truth to illustrate that second truth, to bring out meanings or emphasis on... on uh, on the truth being taught about. It's something that's cast alongside so that it, it reflects on, on what it is being compared to. Now, Jesus taught this way because those who were humble and teachable would listen, but those who, in my mind, unless this is what I've always gotten out of that, is that those who had pride and were set in their ways, they wouldn't understand. No, they, they 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 would have a very difficult time, and it's 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 really a matter of being closed mind and, and, and prejudice. Uh, but that's not to say that that Jesus uh, did not deal with them and did not teach them. Uh, there are a few parables that were expressly given to them, and I think it was for their benefit. I don't think that uh, the, the Lord really just uh, you know cut them off and 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 just totally forgot about them uh, certainly they were loved by the lord and i think their welfare w was a concern of his but for the most part uh he he was addressing either general audiences or specifically his disciples well very good point uh, why have you departed from this mainstream of interpretation of the parables well mainstream system of interpreting the parables is to make it, to allegorize uh, the elements in the parables or the parables themselves. Now, an allegory is where uh, one thing stands for another. Uh, in my book, I mentioned about General B in the Battle of Manasseh, or Bull Run, the first battle, and how General B wanted uh, General Jackson to advance and, and to attack. He, he was uh, situated on a hilltop, and apparently he gave the order, but Jackson didn't move. And Parable said, well, look at Jackson. He's standing there like a stone wall. Well, that's an allegory, but what was meant by that, uh, some interpreted it, well, it was a criticism against Jackson because he refused to advance. Others said that it was a complimentary, that he was holding firm. Now, uh, uh, who can say exactly which meaning is accurate? It's only in the mind of General B, and he never explained it. So when you when you allegorize, unless the allegory is explained to you or it is evident by its context, you really don't know what's in the mind of the person who spoke it. So consequently, when men, uh, theologians or pastors, whatever, uh, begin to allegorize, you know, the stories, uh, uh, it's it, it's a guess. Because uh, Jesus gave the story, but he never explained it. So you can come up with all kinds of meanings to um, words and phrases and, and, and the elements. Uh, and so in my exposure 
to uh, being taught, I found that these allegories were very often contradictory both to the story, to the general um, uh, gospel itself, and that they were not consistent, and that they were inconsistent. So there was a lot of trouble there. So I thought about it, and I thought, you know, if you just take these things literally and do not use allegories at all, suddenly they all made sense, and they became very simple, and there was there was the, no mystery or hidden elements to it. Bill, your book, I see, contains 21 parables. Let's look at one and go into some uh, detail and point out the this confusing allegory and the simplicity, as you're pointing out, of the uh, real message. The parable of, of the leaven is, is a great example of uh, allegorizing. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leaven. There's two basic uh, interpretations of this parable using the allegorizing. Uh, the first is, is that uh, uh, the leaven is, is a good thing. It represents, uh, uh, I seem some, some have said it represents the church, the kingdom of heaven, or, 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 or the gospel in general, Christianity. And that the meal is the world. So that uh, uh, the kingdom of God is inserted into the world and eventually the whole world becomes as the kingdom of God. Uh, so it permeates throughout the world till it's, 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 it's complete. The other interpretation is that the leaven is evil, uh, something wicked, and that the meal is the kingdom of, of God or the kingdom of heaven. And that the actions uh, that the woman is is a wicked woman, an evil woman, and so that she uh, took this leaven, which is evil, and she hid it in the uh, kingdom of God, and eventually the the the, the meal becomes totally leaven. So the kingdom of God becomes totally leaven or, or evil. But if you look at both of those and you draw them out to their conclusions, they don't work because uh, uh, certainly the gospel, even though it's spread throughout the world, doesn't permeate the world and, and the world doesn't become like the gospel. And then on the other hand, to say that uh, the kingdom of God is going to be totally corrupt at some point in the future is, uh, is also wrong. Um, the fact, uh, if, if we just take it literally, the leaven is leaven, the woman is a woman, and her actions are, are, are typical of housewives uh, making leavened bread. And uh, as far as uh, the word hid can also be mean uh, in the Greek as to mix. But if a woman is making leavened bread, how else would she insert the leaven into the meal where it wouldn't be hid? So there's nothing really mysterious about that. Uh, I think that the whole key to this parable uh, comes down to the one small four-letter word, till. And I believe what Jesus is teaching is that the kingdom of God is going to take time until it reaches its conclusion or, 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 or its intended purpose. And so... Um, uh, there was uh, nothing really mysterious about this. It's just the kingdom of God is going to, going to take time to develop. You say you don't want to be disrespectful to anyone of disagreement, but your book is uh, just simple reading. It makes sense. And giving in time, like you said before, people get the aha response. Yes, aha. Uh -huh. so, <laughs> so it does challenge the old school. Well, it does. I, 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 I think, I think one of the, I think the greatest natural asset that God has given man, to all men, is is their mind, their brain, the ability to think. And yet, it's amazing how how much uh, we don't think, uh, how little at times we do use our mind. 
And, and, and the, the Bible is the Word of God, and it's a bridge between the mind of God and, 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 and our mind. And so, uh, uh, there's, you know, God wants to get a message across to us, and I don't think he, he wants to confuse us in any way. Uh, I, I certainly, when I was doing my research, I, I, I read many books, and I felt that all these authors were, were very respectable, honorable men, and I didn't mean to come out with any kind of personal attack upon them, but I felt what they had to say was wrong, and so I, I you know, stated that, and, and I guess you could some people could say maybe you know criticize them for um, uh, for some of their fanciful ideas. I, I really felt that some of them should have known better than what they had had uh, taught about these parables. Well, you say you have tried to limit your observations to the teaching of Jesus within his parables, and not to pontificate your own personal views. Yes, yes, and. Uh, I, in in each chapter, which is a parable, uh, where it is applicable, I have notes on the customs, uh, language notes, and I have points of the parable itself. Then I present the allegorical interpretations, and then I present my interpretation, and then I try to bring out the lesson of the parable and its application. But uh, I didn't want to get off and start rambling and chasing rabbits and preaching from them, which is what you see an awful lot. Now, when men do that, they often bring out some very excellent points, but they're really not explaining the parable. They, 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 they get off the subject, kind of using a, the, a parable as a springboard to dive into to some other pool of thought. The title of the book, The Parables of Jesus Revisited. An innovative approach to understanding and interpreting the parables, and the author is William F. Beckgard. Bill, tell us how to get your book. Well, uh, the simplest way that I have found uh, as of now is to uh, go to Amazon and do a search on the title of the book, and it will come up. It is, uh, it is also the least expensive way to order the book. So it's Amazon. Search the parables of Jesus revisited and it will come up. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, thank you, Bill. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you, and I appreciate your time. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.